Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is September 8th, 2022, and I'm joined today by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today we're going to be talking about why university endowments should be the primary source of student loans. Now, Dr. Matthews, that was the title of your most recent op-ed in The Hill publication. And I think we want to talk about your piece, but then we want to sort of go a a little broader and talk about some of these issues with student loans and universities and all that sort of thing. But uh, talk to us a little bit about your piece in The Hill. Well, so my modest proposal here is that college and university endowments should be the place where those should be the primary source of student loans rather than putting that obligation off on the taxpayer. And so you'll remember that this used to be, we've talked about this before on a previous podcast, but there was this going back and forth between whether or not student loans should be done by the federal government, direct by the federal government, should they be done by the private sector. In fact, in fact we, should, we should just explain to our listeners that we did, a, we did an IPI policy basics mm-hmm. episode recently on just this whole, the history of student loans. Right. And you went through that history of how it's gone back and forth from mostly private sector to mostly government and that sort of a thing. Right. And then when Barack Obama came in in 2010, he essentially federalized the whole thing, just about, mm. uh, and and did it with the claim that this was going to save the federal government $68 billion by doing that. And, of course, this has been going forward. It wasn't saving the federal government any money. But then Joe Biden came up and said, well, I need votes. And so... I'm going to I've I've been promising for some time to try to uh, essentially forgive a lot of the federal debt out there, student loan mm-hmm. debt. Uh, and so he did that here recently. And that was uh, that was estimated over 10 years that it could cost the federal government roughly half a trillion dollars, maybe more uh, given. And, and then, of course, that's just for the federal debt that are the student loan debt that's out there now. Mm -hmm. You've got new college students that are going to be coming in saying, well, if you forgave all that debt, shouldn't you be forgiving our debt? We don't know how big this is going to be. Right. And I mean, before we get into your idea about uh, using university endowments, let's emphasize the fact that there's a sense in which Biden's student, student loan forgiveness really solves nothing. No. I mean, if you are one of those students who had, you know, less than $20,000 debt or less mm-hmm. than $10,000 debt and your debt gets wiped off the books. I mean, it does, it certainly does something for you. Yeah. Okay. But what happens to the student who is enrolling for the 22, 23 college year? Exactly. Or the 23, 24 college year? Uh, nothing has changed structurally mm-hmm. in either the loan program or the tuition rates that universities charge. Uh, you and I both believe that this forgiveness is actually going to make the universities make it easier for universities to raise their tuition right. even higher. And so you've got this one time, supposedly one time thing that was done for this one demographic slice. But what is going to be the ethical and moral argument for not coming around and doing this again three or four years from now? Oh, I think I think in two years we'll be looking at a presidential election. Mm-hmm. And I suspect Joe Biden will want to be coming back because at least as it stands right now, he wants to run again, mm-hmm. uh, that they'll be looking at trying to redo this again. 
in essence, making this a permanent forgiveness until such time as they have the ability to be able to get enough votes in the House and Senate to be able to wipe it out completely. And so there ought to be they ought there ought to be a broad conversation about making structural changes to the way this is done. And mm-hmm. I think that's the right context for your your idea here about these university endowments. So what I'm what we're talking about here is that colleges and universities have many of them have huge endowments. In fact, when you go and you look at the the National Center for Education Statistics uh, and that's a federal agency says there's roughly 691 billion dollars billion dollars currently in uh, college and university endowments. That is a ton of money. And so just looking at 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 that when you when you break it down, Harvard's got the largest endowment, about forty two billion dollars. Yale's got the next one, thirty one thirty one point two billion dollars. The University of Texas system, which is now you're moving from a private to a public university system, mm-hmm. has got around thirty billion dollars. In fact, there's uh, there's been discussion lately because the Texas university system gets, I think, money from royalties and so forth from oil and gas that it might actually be have a larger endowment than Harvard. But uh, a lot of universities out there have got endowments. You know, it is interesting that um, you you got a list here that we're working off of of some of the largest endowments. And while most of the schools on this list, this list are private, you know, like uh, Ivy League type schools, mm-hmm. there are several public universities on here that have huge endowments. University of Texas System, University of Pennsylvania, Texas A&M, which is a different university system than the, than the uh, University of Texas System. Um, University of Virginia has it looks like about a seven billion dollar endowment. So these are these are um, these are universities that are sitting on, frankly, an enormous pile of money. And I, I I'm confident that in most cases, uh, the tuition that these schools are receiving, mm-hmm. in addition to for the public schools, the taxpayer support that they're getting is entirely paying for the cost of operating these universities. And so the endowment just kind of sits there and grows. It it does grow. And it's not just a few colleges. Um, Back in 2018, the survey found that 75% of public and private universities had more than $10 million in their endowment. So there are smaller colleges and universities out there, but 75% of the college and Colleges and universities in the country have more than ten million dollars in their endowment. And while ten million may not seem like a lot compared to forty billion, I mean, for a small school, <laughs> you know, proportionally that could be just as big of an endowment. So the question is, what? How do they invest this money? These endowments they use to invest, and how do they invest that money? And uh, in large part, most of it is invested in stocks and bonds and cash and so forth. About seventy-two percent. In general, about 21% are invested with private equity firms, such as hedge funds and things like that. And about 7.2% is invested in natural resources. So they take this money and they invest it. They hope to gain about 7 to 7.5%. Some years, I'm sure they do more than that. Some years, they do less than that. And that's sort of the standard long-term projection that most most asset managers use. That's their goal, to be able to do that. And Harvard's gained a reputation for getting very good investments from its endowment of $41, $42 billion. So they they do well with these things. And then what happens is they take the proceeds from that, the earnings they they sometimes get from this, and then they uh, provide some direct student aid, uh, maybe some uh, uh, 
money for endowments there, for uh, professorships, for uh, campus repair or building and so forth. So they use the money that they receive from that, the the, uh, return they get for investing in the university typically, Mm -hmm. but they typically don't do that with the principal. They keep the principal. And so what I'm suggesting is that maybe the first the the loaner of first resort rather than the federal government might be these universities and their endowments. And what I'm tossing out is the notion that you might say, well, all right, if you, you've got these major endowments, billions of dollars, you become the the loaner of first resort. This is this would be an asset because right. you're taking the money and you're loaning it to some to a student at interest. There, there's no difference between one of these endowments loaning money to the federal government at interest in the form of buying a treasury note mm-hmm. or loaning money to a student at interest. It might be a little safer with well, the student. Exactly. <laughs> but, but that's, but you know, but we're used to variable risk like that. Yes. And we address that through variable interest rates. And, and interestingly, you know, you think, well, they wouldn't be getting this kind of interest rate uh, from the students. But in fact, um, it's usually they run about uh, three, three and a half percent. The federal loans for undergraduate students, but when you're talking about graduate students, those in professional school and so forth, they can get up in the 6-7% range. So for some of it, it's not that far off. So at any rate, what, what I was suggesting is that for endowments, they take a certain, there might be a cap of it, let's say 75% of your endowment funds. It could be 60%, I'm just tossing out 75%, but you use that as the first line of of loan uh, of access to money for loans, free student loans. And the reason I do this, I think there's several reasons for that. Number one, there's a principle among us, especially with taxes, is that those people who enjoy the benefits of something should be the ones who pay for it. And in this case, the the two entities that benefit most from people being able to go to college are the the universities and colleges that get the tuition money from there, and then the students that go through and, and try to graduate. Receives a benefit. Receives right. a benefit. Yeah. So that that's your two f- sources. But instead, we're going to the taxpayer, and I'm not sure the taxpayers, you can make a general case that some taxpayers get some benefits of this, but by and large, it's the students and the colleges that get the most benefit and, from and this. The, and, and under this current environment, both students and the taxpayers, I mean, both the students and the universities are mm-hmm. being subsidized by the taxpayers. Right. Yeah. And so this suggests that what you would do is that since the universities and the students are the ones that benefit the most, it would make most sense that the universities that ha- that are sitting on a lot a, a ton of money mm-hmm. be the ones that make the loans to the students and then i think there's some be some other benefits from that oh i, th- I think there would be an enormous number of of benefits and when you because what you're what you're describing is really completely altering the entire incentive structure this is a here. fundamentally different incentive and, and I, structure. i know you want to talk about that but I, but I want to emphasize one point when we're talking about requiring that the universities become lender of first resort from mm-hmm. their endowments. We are we are not, I want to just underscore what you were saying, we're not saying they should be doing charity. Right. We're saying they should be investing in their students. Investing in their students. Exactly. Exactly right. And if you, if you feel like these students are good enough to come to your university, you ought to be f- willing to invest in them. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, uh, you, the, Endowment becomes the loaner of first resort. They make the loan to the students. And I think a couple of things that would come from that. Number one is the universities would have a a real financial 
interest in making sure these people do well, graduate, and go out and get a good job. With, with as little debt as possible. With as little debt right. as possible. Okay. So that might put pressure upon the university to say, let's make sure we're keeping our tuition as low as possible, our room and board as low as possible, because that means they have to buy less debt. It also suggests another change, I think, that that it would affect admissions policies mm-hmm. because universities now, I think, too often have an attitude that, hey, if, 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 if you can get the if you can get the federal aid, if you can get the student aid, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, whereas in this case, the universities would be forced to actually take a look at is this actually a student who can actually succeed here and right. graduate and pay off their loan? So I think it would affect admissions policies, including standards, but not only just standards, but it would affect admissions policies. There's been this long-running concern that universities have moved to policies that are just trying to bring in people to make them diverse rather than those who are most likely to succeed at this. Right. And that has, and that, that approach has uh, diminished Asians who oftentimes yeah. have are very high scores. I mean, there's a people. specific... There's a specific significant legal case where Harvard is being accused of discriminating against Asians Mm -hmm. in their admissions policy. And, you know, with the change that you propose, the rational thing for Harvard to do then would be to stop discriminating against Asians. Yes. Because as a class, they do tend to succeed. They do tend to graduate. And they do tend to succeed financially Mm -hmm. and are more likely to pay off their loans. Exactly. (laughs) So that makes a certain amount of sense. And and another point is, I think, because – you want these students to succeed under this under this model. You would you might very well say, all right, let's let's spend less time offering courses that are of less benefit to to mm-hmm. people and their uh, and their careers, right. uh, less helpful, and focus more on those courses that are more helpful to people. Which doesn't mean you don't have art majors or something of right. that nature. It just means that you're focusing more on those those courses that produce. Uh, productive citizens. And it doesn't mean you wouldn't have, you know, uh, you know, wild haired electives yeah. either. But but you would at least review your course offerings mm-hmm. and, and it would it would at least become a criteria. How does this class actually contribute toward the success of our students and, and the graduation of our students? Right. Exactly right. And so you have that aspect of it. And then I think it it so there, there's this fundamental change and I would still put a backstop here. So I wouldn't necessarily say, uh, you know, you have the university has to do all use all of its endowment. But at some point, you might say 75 percent would go to the students. If there are more students, then it would drift shift over to federal aid. Or if you're a college or university that doesn't have a very large endowment, it would federal aid could still be there. But that the lender of first resort would be the college and university endowments. You have shared with me privately in discussing this topic, the comparison that already in existing tax law, uh, private foundations mm-hmm. are required, in fact, to give away 5% right. of their assets every year. And that's giving away. We're not talking about giving yeah, I mean, away, as charity, you mentioned. Right, right? Exactly. That's charity. So, so what you're describing, if there were some federal requirement that X percentage of the endowment had to go towards student loans... Uh, that's that would not be completely novel mm-hmm. because we already in the IRS tax code say in exchange for the benefits you're getting from being a nonprofit or whatever, uh, there are some re- some requirements that you're expected to do. 
Right. And I, I did have a response to somebody on this who said, well, uh, universities aren't banks, but they may not be banks, but that doesn't mean they can't they can't manage these loans or that they can't contract with a savings and loan or something that could manage. I, I think universities are not banks is kind of a naive thing for your respondent. The federal to government's say, not a bank either to say, because the 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 most expensive sophisticated portfolio managers in the country mm-hmm. are guiding some of these endowments with Harvard and Stanford and places like that so they they have very sophisticated financial uh uh establishments in place and all of the student aid is distributed through the bursar every every university has a bursar's office mm-hmm. that that Every student at that university has an account with the bursar's office. It's the bursar's office that tells them, you know, how much Stafford loan they're entitled to or whatever. Uh, if they're getting any kind of stipends from the university, it comes from the bursar's office. So I would argue that there is already a banking and investment function at most of these universities. Mm-hmm. They may not legally be banks, but 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 they're prepared to take on banking functions. So the key purpose behind this is to try to say, we need to be able to move away from what we're doing right now, which is simply a, a burden on the taxpayer, and put the burden back to those those that benefit from it and create the right incentives so that the colleges and universities have a financial incentive to say, we want to make sure our people actually succeed, graduate, that they're, that college is as affordable as possible. And colleges and universities will say they do that now. I don't believe no, a word out. I don't. I don't believe it either. There, there's another. There's another change. I think that an idea along these lines would cause too. And let's just face it: uh, uh, an art history degree is not as valuable as a computer science degree. Right. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. You're not going to. And I don't say that because my son was a computer science major. But just the earning potential of those careers is just different. And it doesn't mean one's better than the other. Right. But the earning potential is different. It makes zero sense to me to look at a college catalog and see that the tuition cost for a basket weaving elective is the same cost per hour as the classes taken by engineers and computer science majors. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense whatsoever. And I think if the universities had skin in the game, which is what your idea here is intended to accomplish, uh, they would also start taking a look at, it doesn't make sense for us to take an art history major and a, and a computer science major and turn them both loose on the world with $85,000 of debt. Mm-hmm. The computer science major may very well be able to pay for that. The art history major is not. The pre-med so, student may be The pre-med student may, absolutely. So maybe it, maybe it just costs less to get a degree in art history than it does in computer science. Mm-hmm. At, and it strikes me that that's entirely rational. There's no reason why universities should be, you know, flat fee for <laughs> flat fee for you know tuition. That doesn't of course, make sense. They talk about uh, art history and other things, but there's a number of just a regular history degree or an English degree. Right. Somebody who wants to go be an English teacher, right? We're not. I'm not suggesting that these are good degree. Yes, I'm to not get. suggesting that these are not worthwhile pursuits. Right. Uh, if you want to go out and get a degree in political science, there's a lot of really interesting things you can do with that. Um, but you're probably not going to make as much money as the computer science guy, you know? So why should the degree cost the same? And why should you leave the school with the same amount of debt? It just doesn't make sense. Now, so what this would end up doing is, you know, you've, you've had this, I think, I think there's going to be a backlash to the 
Biden's an attempt to try to uh, forgive this, these uh, student loans. I think that's going to be a problem for them. There's, there's, I think, virtually no chance that a Democratic House or Senate would propose legislation like this. But a Republican House or Senate might. When you say there's going to be backlash, I think this is really interesting because part of why even some Democrats have been coming out and saying this is a bad idea. Yes, indeed they have. Is be, it's this, this like, this lights a grass fire on the subject of student debt because on the one hand, there's going to be a backlash saying this is unfair, this is wrong, this is harmful, this is going to contribute to higher tuition rates. But on the other side, you're going to have people a couple of years from now, again, start start clamoring again for more student loan relief. Yeah. And so both sides are going to, you know, be using this as a wedge issue. And so, you know, possibly out of all that, we could actually have a window of opportunity to actually talk about fundamentally changing the way this is done. And let me add one more thing there. You're, you mentioned that people a few years now will want the same benefit. Mm-hmm. That's if this goes through. And one of the real backlashes I think could be, I've, I've been watching tweets from uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren and others who are sort of saying, you are now, we have fixed this problem for you. You are debt free. Wait a minute. Yeah. Biden has said he's going to do this, but it's not clear they're going to be able to get this through uh, the constitutional challenges that I'm hoping will come to this. And one of the real backlashes may be that if if the if the courts and ultimately the Supreme Court over the next several months or a year say, no, you absolutely have no authority to do something like this, then the next thing you have to do is you have to come up and explain why. Yeah, we promised you this, and you went out and bought a new car or something with the money you thought <laughs> you were going to save. Your payments, and you quit making right. your payments, and now you're going to have to do that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about why we think that this is legally dicey, right? Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I think a lot of people just have a general sense. Wait a minute, where in the Constitution does the executive branch get get the power to do things like this? Right? Exactly. Well, it right. turns out that there is. I mean, it, because it, it does seem totally alien to the idea of limited powers of of the executive. Um, there is legislation in place that the Biden administration is relying on mm-hmm. for this, and it's it's legislation that I believe was passed in the wake of 9-11, and it gives the, the Secretary of Education power to alter student loans in case of nat- national disaster right. or national emergency. And so it's not that the Biden administration is just waving its hand and saying we can't point to anything. They do have something they can point to. Except you remember that they that both Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden said they didn't have the right. power to do that. And that that brings up a point I'm just want to want to make briefly here is the laws are there are so many laws and there's and many times they're so vague that anybody who wants to do anything can find something yes. which they say we think get this gives us the power. Oh no, I, I totally agree. But I I think our listeners who are not aware should know that the Biden administration they do have a legal memo where right. they say here's where we get the authority to do this. Right. Now the problem is a um it's not at all clear from the text of, the leg- of that legislation that it allows something this sweeping. Exactly. B, those powers in that legislation have never been challenged mm-hmm. in court. So just because a law exists on the books doesn't actually mean that it will withstand constitutional scrutiny, you know. And C, the Biden administration has already argued to the Supreme Court that the COVID emergency is over. Right. 
But now they're saying, no, the COVID emergency is still going on. And at some point, I would think a court would say to the Biden administration, you got to pick one or the other. You can't come to us with a case where you argue that the national emergency is over and then come to us six months later with a case and say that the national emergency is still going on. And, of course, the COVID emergency was used to be able to say we are uh, we are postponing your your obligation to pay your your right. interest and pay back your loan right but it wasn't cancellation it was as we're getting, right. we're pausing your the the pausing the requirements that you have to make your loan payments mm-hmm. but pausing a loan payment isn't the same as eliminating a loan there was also the uh, the the executive branch also asserted that it could put a moratorium on rent payments mm-hmm because of the national emergency, and the court found that that was not true. But then the Biden administration said, we're going to change the Trump administration's border policies that were put in place because of the COVID emergency, and the reason we're going to change those policies is that the emergency's over. Right. So you you, you can't have it both ways. You can't say the emergency's over, for, so we're changing our border policy, but the emergency is still severe, so we're going to forgive all these student loans. But I'll add one more thing. You can't go around during a re-election time and talk about how great the economy is, how many jobs you've added, how many people want to hire people out there, how unemployment is down low, uh, how people are making more because of your policies, and then turn around and say we're in some kind of national emergency. You can't say we're in one of the best, as as his press secretary said, Biden's press secretary, we're in the best economy we've ever had, and then turn around and say we're in a national emergency. That's a really good point. And, you know, as we record this podcast. Uh, it's the first week of September. Uh, election season really starts after Labor Day. So this is when all this stuff is going to intensify. And you're right. The Democrats have used contradictory rhetoric on these issues. They, they've used contradictory rhetoric on energy policy. And it'll be interesting to see as the campaign season heats up you, how that works out for them. You may be able to fool the electric, but electorate, but I'm not sure you're going to be able to fool the courts. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Well, we would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org, and we'd also invite you to check out our other podcast, the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Uh, During this podcast today, we have touched on this issue of the history of the student loan program. We've touched on the idea of moral hazard, the moral hazard of bailouts and things like that. And we've done IPI Policy Basics episodes on all of those topics. On our website at IPI.org, you can sign up to receive notices of all of our new podcast episodes our new written content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society, and we would very much appreciate it if you would do so. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.